Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this not in this world. On Saturday, January 20th, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Liam took us through an overview of the story of the whole Bible. Liam is an elder and teaching pastor at Christchurch London and a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. A word of apology before we begin. The sound quality isn't perfect in this recording, but what Liam has to say is great and we thought that you'd really benefit from it anyway. Let's take a listen to the session. Uh, wonderful. Well, it's great to be with you. I love the juxtaposition of uh, Liam's amazing, Liam's incredible. But just two minutes before, you said, we know you're going to listen to teaching for an entire day and then forget all of it. So that's <laughs> kind of like build me up, knock me down. Thank you very much for that. But, um, no, it's really great to be with you. And uh, yeah, so I uh, recognise some of your faces. So it's great to be with you again. I've come and visited the church a few times. And, uh, but it's a privilege to be here this morning. For those of you I don't yet know, it'd be great to meet you. And um, uh, I hope to be able to connect with you across the morning. And uh, yeah, as uh, Andy said, we are kicking off a school of theology today. And I'm very aware that this session is probably going to be quite different to the other sessions. If you look through the programme you'll see that um, over the course of the next two years, you will be looking at various books of the Bible and various big topics of the Bible. And I think each, each month will include a book and a topic. Today, we're going to do something slightly different. We won't be looking at one particular book of the Bible. We'll be kind of looking at the whole thing. And we'll be looking at various different bits and pieces, which I hope will give you the foundations for what you need for the next two years. So I feel like today may be slightly different to the rest of the two-year course. Uh, so if you don't like today, that's all right. I'm not going to be here the rest of the two-year course. Uh, so hopefully the rest will be more to your liking. Uh, but I do really hope that today will give you the foundations. And some of it may seem a bit abstract, and some of it we're going to go through ridiculously quickly. But actually, if you can do those reflections, start to think about some of the principles we talk about today, then I hope that over the next two years, as you really get into particular topics and you get into particular books of the Bible, uh, they will come alive and they will make a bit more sense. So we're going to get right in in a moment. But actually, I realise... Um, it's a bit weird when you don't know someone uh, and they come and te- teach you for a whole day and you think, why should I listen to you? So um, I could tell you bits about myself, but that's a bit boring. So why don't you ask some questions about me? Ask some questions that would help you think, this guy's worth listening to for a couple of hours. Uh, they can be serious, they can be whimsical. Uh, in fact, I enjoy the whimsical ones a bit more. So um, go for it. What would you like to know about me before we get into this? How long ago? Ah, that's a good one. Uh, 4th of June 2007 was the last time I was fully clean-shaven. There you go. I mean, I haven't grown it consistently since then. It's been a different stages. And some people find it weird that I remember that date so acutely. But actually, it's a significant milestone in my love life, so it's quite memorable. (laughs) The last time my wife kissed me. I'm not really a fan of the beard, to be honest. Um, I mean, I guess I could do something about that, but to be honest, I only grew the thing because she's like, oh, I'll kiss her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's not true. <laughs> but good question. Why do you agree to do 
Uh, I, I'm asking myself that very same question. I am. You're Gorton, aren't you? You are the man who just screamed on behalf of an entire section of Manchester. Tim, was it? Okay, great. I'm going to be careful about you. Um, why did I, I agree to do this? Because, um, and I'm actually going to be at two of your services tomorrow as well. I agree to do it because um, I love coming up and visiting this church. Um, I love what this church is doing. One of the things that really excites me about this church is that every time I come, there's new stuff going on, new leaders, and new things, new services, and you just have a great attitude towards giving away leadership and trying new things, and when I come here, it inspires me to take a few more risks, so uh, partly selfishly, I feel like I get something out of coming and visiting the church in Manchester, um, and also hopefully I may have something to so. <laughs> Great, another question. No, no, not you. Not you. Oh. So, uh, the Bible. Um, I support Arsenal. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but we are in a miserable phase at the moment, so um, uh, Tim mocked me relentlessly. If I look back over my text messages from Tim Simmons, like, there's the occasional one about something practical to do with my visit, but most of them are just gifts of Ozil, like, like oh, us screwing up another really easy game or something like that. But, um, thank you, Tim. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Where did you train? Where did I train? Train, train in. Um, ah, so okay, so I haven't actually. Um, uh, so I did a degree in drama and philosophy, uh, which is why I am argumentative and melodramatic, which is a, a beautiful combination, <laughs> a joy for my wife, I'm sure. Um, but then uh, I, when I moved to London, I started doing quite a lot of the preaching and teaching there. Um, I was part of the New Frontiers Church, and so I went through the kind of New Frontiers training programs, uh, but hadn't done anything official until a couple of years ago when I did an MA in Biblical Theology at King's College London, um, which was good fun. Yeah, and quite fun. Yeah. One more whimsical question, and then we'll get into it. Yes. Oh, venga in or venga out. Um, I Now I'm saying out. Uh, previously, I've been like in, but. You know, who else are we going to get? I've no idea, but... Um, you yeah. ought to explain that to some people. Yeah, he's the Arsenal manager, and he's destroying us. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, wonderful. Um, let's get into the Bible. And um, I, we are going to skim over a whole load of things today. Um, but uh, like I say, I want to give you some categories of things that will help you over the next two years. And um, I want to begin by thinking about really what the Bible... Is I mean, the Bible is really, I mean, it's one book in the form that we have it, uh, but really it's more like a library. And in the sense that when you walk into a library, you don't expect that you will be able to pick any book off the shelf and it will be connected to all the other books and you'll be able to read it in exactly the same sort of way. Actually, when we approach the Bible, we need to know that it is a collection of books. And we can't just think that one way of reading will, uh, will suffice for the entire book. It's like going into a library and picking them up and having to think, what's the genre of this book? What is it particularly about this book that I need to think about before I can understand it? It is a library of books. And it's made up of various different genres. And on one of your pages, you have a list of those genres. But before you turn there, uh, just I, I want to I get you just talking a little bit. So the Bible is made up of a whole list of genres, uh, narrative, law, wisdom, pro- Poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic, gospel, and epistle. Uh, when I say narrative, the narrative genre of the Bible, what kind of books come to mind for you? Old Testament and New Testament. Genesis, yep. Esther, yep. Ruth, yep. Sorry? Job. 
Yes, interesting. So what we're going to get to is the fact that actually there is narrative in Job, but um, if we're to understand it, we can't just treat it in exactly the same way as those uh, others as well. So Job actually often comes under the category of wisdom books, which uh, Job contains a lot of narrative and a lot more narrative than many of the other wisdom books. But there are particular things about the way that the narrative is uh, framed in Job and other wisdom books that mean you need to approach it in a slightly different way. So there's not a wrong answer, uh, but uh, just something to bear in mind. Well, since we've done wisdom, other wisdom books? Proverbs. Proverbs, yeah. Ecclesiastes, yes, great. And then maybe a few of the Psalms. So the Psalms, you've got a whole bunch of them, 150, but some of them may come under the wisdom category. Um, poetry, I'm just kind of giving it my way. Uh, what, what comes to mind when you think of the poetic books of the Bible? Song songs, yeah, psalms, yeah. Lamentations would be the other sort of typical one. Law, what sort of books come to mind there? Leviticus, yeah. Sorry? Some of Exodus, yes. And I'm glad you did some of Exodus, actually, because Exodus, really, the first half of it is narrative, the second half of it is law. Um, and so even within one book, you need to think about how you interpret it in slightly different ways. So, yeah. Um, prophecy. Isaiah. Isaiah, yeah. yeah. Now, Daniel's an interesting one. I don't know if you said Daniel, but... But um, Daniel, similarly uh, to, to uh, what we said earlier with Job, actually there are many senses in which Daniel is a prophetic book, and there are many disagreements over whether it is typical prophecy or not. Actually, there's a whole category known as apocalyptic, um, of which there are only really two books in the Bible, Daniel and Revelation, which has a lot of crossover with prophecy, but again, it's slightly unusual, slightly different. So when we get to Daniel, uh, you can get a long way with understanding it if you think of it as prophecy, but actually there are some things that if you think of it as apocalyptic literature, it will open up new of understanding for you. Um, gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, possibly Acts. Like scholars are sort of, uh, they put it into either into narrative or into gospel, and then epistle, you know, whole kind of letters. Uh, if you turn to the next page, you'll see that what I've given you is the categories and sort of divided them out into Old Testament and New Testament. And what is clear from that is that the Old Testament is way more diverse than the New Testament. The New Testament, you primarily have narrative and gospel, and there's question over whether they were even two categories or just one, and then you have apocalyptic revelation, which most people don't know what to do with, and then you've got epistle, which is the main sort of section of the New Testament. So just looking at that makes it clear that the Bible is a complex book. It is a library. It is made up of a whole load of very different things. And if we are to understand how to approach them, then we need to uh, think with different skills uh, according to the genre that we come to. And as we go through the series, as we go through these two years, you will look at all the different genres as well as looking at particular themes that come out of them. And uh, hopefully you will get skills to be able to turn anywhere in this library and work out how you can interpret it. But of course the difference between this book and a library is that you go into a library and you don't expect that this book over here has anything to do with this book over here. The difference there is that the Bible is one book, and in particular, it is one story. And what I want to do in this first session is think about what is the story of the Bible, God's story, and then in the second session, I want to think, well, how does that therefore affect our lives? How does it shape our story? So, can you turn to the next page, please? And what I would like you to do in groups, probably for about, let's say, six or seven minutes, um, I would like you to work through these three questions. 
Uh, the three questions are, what is the story of the Old Testament? What is the story of the New Testament? And what is the story of the Bible? What is the story of the Old Testament? What is the story of the New Testament? And what is the story of the Bible? Okay, great. I'm going to take that sort of semi-silence as... Falling uh, asleep. So... Um, what is the story of the Old Testament? What's the story of the New Testament? What's the story of the Bible? Would anyone fancy sharing the answer to the first of those? What's the story of the Old Testament? Yes, go for it. Great. Well, that's nice and succinct, isn't it? <laughs> they kind of wish the Bible was that short. <laughs> It'd be way easier to study and remember. Um, yeah, okay, great. Uh, any other elements that others might want to add to that? Yep, at the back. God in the garden with his people. Well, that's certainly how it begins. Are you... Great, okay, so there's an aim there uh, from the beginning. God, God has a plan to take his people back to this garden, which represents presumably some kind of state of peace. And... Great. Mr. Gordon. We have no relationship between God and mankind, and God left to restore the relationship. Great, great. So it's sort of tying in these different elements. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Okay, New Testament. Did someone summarize the story of the New Testament? And if anyone just goes to Jesus, like that's the right answer, but also an annoying answer. So, <laughs> uh, right, yeah, I expected that from you. Sorry, was there a, a voice over there that I sort of cut out? Uh, would someone summarize the New Testament for us? New covenant, grace, salvation, and hope. Okay, great, great. Yep. Those are definite themes, aren't they, that, that come through, uh, not exclusively in the New Testament, but yes, more, more clearly. Yeah, great. Any other? Savior reveals the work to be done to usher in his kingdom. Great, great, yeah. So the Savior's revealed, there's work to be done to usher in his kingdom. Yeah. Excellent. Great. So now, if we were to try and summarise that together and say, what is the story of the entire Bible? How would we do that? Any thoughts? Yeah, come back. Creator's pursuit of his creation. Nice. 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 Again, nice and succinct. <laughs> Why is it so big? <laughs> um, yeah, any, any other thoughts? Any other bits added? Uh, sorry, yeah. The breaking down of the restoration of the relationship between God and man. Yeah, great. God's love, yeah. Brilliant. So um, what this shows, I think, is that there are various different elements that make up the story. Um, you can't summarise it in one easy go, which is why it is long, uh, because it's a big story that spans many hundreds or thousands of years. Um, but there are key themes that come through. And what I found really interesting there is, uh, and we'll come back to this in a moment, is that some of you um, answer that question by writing a story, in essence, and some of you just gave me a bunch of themes. Now, that's not wrong, but that's interesting, the two different approaches, because I think those show two very different approaches to theology, both of which are helpful, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But before we get there, let me uh, read to you a 100-word summary of the Bible from a guy called G.K. Beale, who is a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, theologian. Well, to be, to be honest, it's 107 words with some cunning word-reducing hyphenation. Um, but this is what he says. The Old Testament storyline that I posit for the basis of the New Testament storyline is this. 
The Old Testament is the story of God who progressively re-establishes his new creational kingdom out of chaos over a sinful people by his word and spirit through promise, covenant and redemption, resulting in a worldwide commission to the faithful to advance his kingdom and judgment, defeat or exile for the unfaithful unto his glory. Why didn't any of you put it quite like that? <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Uh, then he says this, the New Testament transformation of the storyline of the Old Testament that I propose is this. He could have made it shorter if he got rid of sentences like that, but there we go. He says, Jesus' life, trials, death for sinners, and especially resurrection by the Spirit have launched the fulfillment of the eschatological, already not yet new creational reign, bestowed by grace through faith and resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this new creational reign and resulting in judgment for the unbelievers leading unto the triune God's glory. Nice and catchy and easy to remember. (laughs) Uh, But what I find interesting about that, and I think that's a very thorough summary, is that in the same sort of way that some of us went, well, it's a story about X, and some of us went, well, here are the themes, hope, grace, covenant, etc., etc. He sort of melded the two together. He's told one big story, and because he's told it in two halves, it feels like there's almost discontinuity between the two, but there's loads of continuity as well. So if you were to read through that again and sort of mull over the way he has framed that story... It is one story. The first half of the story goes in a particular way, and there's a certain lack of clarity over what themes like um, order out of chaos mean. But when you get to the New Testament, it's not like Jesus just goes, hey, brand new story, we're starting afresh. No, it continues, it picks up the themes from before, but gives a new twist to them so you understand them more fully. So the mission runs right through Old Testament and New Testament, only the focus of the mission is slightly different. There is, as someone said, a plan to restore everything, to get us back to the garden, which is not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. And there are these things that run right through the story of God. Any questions on that at the moment? Right, if I were to summarise it in a more catchy form, um, I would say that the, the story of the Bible falls into four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You may have heard... The, the gospel of the story of the Bible spelt out in those four categories before. I find that a really helpful way of thinking about it. Creation. God made everything, and he made it perfect, and he put us into it. Mankind made in his image with purpose and dignity and destiny and a plan to expand the boundaries of this Eden, filling the world with his glory and his peace and shalom. The Hebrew word is fullness and goodness. Filling the world with a sense of what it means to be in right relationship with God. But then act two, you get the very quickly everything falls apart because man decides to go his own way rather than following the way of God and so arguably the rest of the story is tainted with this act of fall everything starts to unravel the relationship between man and woman or mankind is broken the relationship between us and God is broken the relationship between us and the earth is broken so everything is now tainted act three redemption Jesus comes onto the scene and we'll come back to whether there's something in between and I think there is and actually Israel is a big thing and we'll come back to that in the second session but Jesus comes onto the scene and he changes everything he shows us what it originally meant to look like uh, what it originally looks like to be in relationship with God and with others and with the world he did everything that Adam was unable to do he took the place of Adam he took the place of Israel and through his death and resurrection made it possible 
for this storyline that was starting here in Act 1, completely derailed in Act 2, uh, now just to get back on track, heading towards Act 4, Restoration, when he will return and make all things new. And we will dwell again in a garden, but it's not like a little sort of patch of grass. Actually, it's a city in a garden. It's a fully renewed creation. This is the story of the whole Bible in four acts. Creation 4, Redemption, Restoration. Does that make sense? Is that a way of telling the story that you're familiar with? Or was there anything in there that was unfamiliar to you? Quite familiar? Great. Okay. Now, let me just take a detour for a moment. Because if that is God's story, like I said, some of the ways that we here and then Beale there uh, express that story, um, some of them were more, here's a narrative of what happens from A to B, and some of them were sort of themes along the way. So Beale essentially tells this story of creation, form, redemption, restoration. But you notice he throws in little words there, like triune, <laughs> uh, referring to the Trinity. You're like, hang on, where, I mean, that word is literally not find, found in the Bible. But it's almost like he can't explain the story without digging into some big concepts that give a framework and understanding to the story. And this, I think, is really important for highlighting two different approaches to theology. So if you turn to the next page, you will see um, these two spelt out. Theologians often talk about biblical theology and systematic theology. I don't know if you're familiar with those two uh, terms or categories, um, but if I were to spell out the difference between the two, it would be this. Biblical theology, and of course we think that all theology should be biblical, right? Because it should be based in the Bible. So when we talk about biblical theology, we're not suggesting that all other theology ignores the Bible. Um, actually, all theology needs to include the Bible, although it's, it's not really theology, or it's not going to help us at least. But biblical theology is a particular approach that traces the unfolding history of God's revelation to and redemption of his people. Biblical theology is usually... Um, organized and categorized historically. So it looks chronologically at how, uh, how the story of scripture developed and therefore how our understanding of key things like God, his people, his plan, his mission, sin, atonement, those sorts of things, how they were understood at particular points. Biblical theology understands that it's not the case that all the way through the Bible people had all the same amount of knowledge or saw things in exactly the same way. And when you engage in biblical theology, um, I think it's fair to say that you typically think more about, well, where does this talk, or where does this passage stand in the long story? And you take it for, for, for what it is. You first of all ask, well, what did people think or mean then, without quickly rushing to go, but what about this verse that happened 300 years later that then modifies it? You, you kind of take it as it is. And so biblical theology typically has a greater appreciation for the diversity of scripture, I think. I think it's fair to say that. I mean, I, my passion is more for biblical theology than systematic theology, so I'm hoping I'm not skewing it. But I think it's fair to say um, that those who engage in biblical theology generally have a greater appreciation for the diversity of scripture and the key themes that are distinctive to a particular book or author. And if you just rush to go, ah, oh, yeah, but what about that verse over here? Then you may miss a whole load of stuff that Solomon was talking about that was particular to his context. So biblical theology traces the whole arc. Systematic theology 
synthesizes and summarizes what the Bible as a whole teaches about topics like God, humanity, Christ, salvation, etc. So if you were to buy a book on biblical theology and look through the contents, you would tend to find that it would start with creation and Genesis and then go to Exodus and you get the story of Israel and then you get the story of the prophets and you sort of go through it chronologically like that. You get a systematic theology, you open it up in the content page and say, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of God, doctrine of sin, doctrine of salvation, drawing stuff from all over scripture and just putting it together so that you can get a sense of what the Bible as a whole says on any given subject. And the strength of systematic theology is that it strongly emphasises the unity of scripture and asks the question, what is the full extent of truth we can know about this subject, this doctrine? So if I am engaging in biblical theology, I'm trying to take the text um, based in their context without rushing to sort of systematise it, then I might look at something in Job and think, well, his view of the afterlife is not very complete. Well, of course it's not very complete, because God has not yet revealed to him through the different chapters of the story. For a systematic theology, we'll just look at the whole Bible and go, well, yes, Job didn't have it all, but this verse explains what Job didn't know, and sort of squeezes it all together so that we can understand everything there is to know about sin, salvation, atonement, etc., etc., does that make sense? You see the two approaches. Now, I, I think actually both are very, very necessary. And one of the things I love about this course um, is that you are going to do both. And that's quite rare in a course. Um, I have taught on systematic theology courses for ages. Um, and then more recently, in the last couple of years, I've taught on a biblical theology course where we've just sort of gone through uh, all of the Bible, thinking about the different genres as you go, it's quite rare to find a course like this where you try and do the two together. So what you're going to do, I, I think it's like over the next few months, is you may look at Genesis, for example, and think about what does Genesis teach us? How do we understand Genesis in its context? But then also, you, you do want to get to systems. You do want to get to understanding what the whole Bible has to say about particular things. So you may read one particular book, and then in the second session, look at a particular subject. And I think doing the two of those together is really helpful, because biblical and systematic theology should help deepen one another says this quote uh, by uh, Vern Boitres, who says this, at their best, biblical theology and systematic theology interact and help to deepen one another. Systematic theology provides doctrines of sovereign, uh, God's sovereignty, of revelation, of God's purposes, and the meaning of history that supply a sound framework of assumptions for the work of biblical theology. Biblical theology, at its best, deepens the appreciation that systematic theology should have for the way in which, in interpreting individual texts and uncovering their relation to a whole topic, the context of the text within the history of redemption colours the interpretation. Biblical theology may also bring to light new themes that can be a starting point for systematic theological explorations into new topics that can receive fuller attention. So, in theory, you need to do both of these things. You need to be able to read the Bible as one big story, but you also need to be able to say, yeah, but what does this whole story teach me about this particular subject? Because if you don't do that, actually you're not going to know how to live differently as a result. You need to do the two. Uh, a guy I know called Matt Hosier, who maybe some of you will know, he describes it um, like this, the difference between Google Maps and a tube map. And he says, uh, he describes having been on a trip to the States where people say, hey, where did you come from? And he said it was really helpful just to be able to drop Google Maps where you could just have this sort of global view and, you know, just to help Americans know, there are other countries outside of America. <laughs> but you start there and you sort of show this global view and then, of course, you narrow down to the UK and then you narrow down to the south of the UK and then you narrow into the particular house. And so you get to see where he lives in the context of the whole globe, right? 
That's kind of what biblical theology does. We kind of narrow it down and we look at particular texts, but then we spin back out and we look at them in the context of the entire story of God's plan. But of course, if someone was asking you, show me where you live, because they intend to come and visit you, then going, hey, Google Maps, here's the earth, here's the UK, here's where I live, is not going to be very helpful. If they actually want to navigate to your house, they need a way more detailed map. So I live in southwest London, so if you were to get to me, you would have to get to me probably via the tube or the bus, probably the tube. And the tube map is a great example, because the tube map doesn't actually bear much resemblance to geographical reality. Hence, you look at these things and you think, wow, it's miles between those two. No, it will take you longer on the tube than actually walking, because it's telling you how to navigate the city. It's not trying to tell you all the details of the geography. But if you were trying to get to my house, Google Maps isn't going to help you. You need a map like the tube map, which is detailed enough to lead you along the way. And that says, essentially, that's the difference between biblical and systematic theology. (laughs) Biblical theology will help you to understand the Bible's broad context and then to narrow in and to think, how does this story fit within the broader context of this genre or this uh, section of the Bible and the whole story of God? But if you really want to know how to navigate life, if you really want to know the difference that the cross makes to you and what that, uh, how that affects your approach to sin and sanctification, you need to think in systematic categories. You need to look at the whole of scripture and you need to have a way of looking at the help you navigate all the details. Does that kind of make sense? Any questions on that or anything so far? Yes? Great. Yes, yes. Well, because, um, so did you hear the question? Do people hear the question? Uh, I'll, I'll try and repeat it for the recording, uh, but tell me if I've just change the questions to make it easy to answer. Um, so the question was, uh, earlier I mentioned the different approaches to the different genres. Um, why, why would you... Yeah, can you just sort of re-articulate the question? <laughs> Rather than looking at it from a biblical yep. or a systematic approach, yep. uh, which implies a unity across all the books, yes. uh, would you want to take a different approach to the different genres. Great, great. So that actually is... Um, so biblical theology typically will give you a greater appreciation for the difference in the genres. Um, so systematic theology is not uncommon to open a book on systematic theology and uh, then to just read this whole long list of verses that relate to a particular theme. Um, and they treat them all exactly the same, or they give the impression that they can all be treated exactly the same. Whereas actually, something that is said in the prophets... Uh, or a bad example, something that's said in the law um, may be very literal, whereas something that's said in the poetic books may be very very metaphorical. And you need to be able to appreciate them differently. So if you kind of just get all the verses that use the word sin and you just sort of mash them together and treat them all exactly the same, actually you may distort what the original writer did. So if you start with a biblical approach, that, and we'll get to this in a second, that says, how does this text... Uh, work within the author's mind and his particular context and what he was trying to convey, and you start there, which is more the task of biblical theology, then you get to understand the texts as they wanted to be understood, as the author wanted them to be understood. And then, of course, when you come to systematize them, which I think you have to do if they're going to be useful to you, you know what weights to give them. 
So I don't give them all the same weight. I may treat that one slightly differently because that's poetic. And that was written at a time when God wasn't speaking so clearly or something like that. Um, uh, whereas this one uh, comes in the New Testament and is the full revelation. And so I treat that more highly and I let that one shape the way I interpret that one. Do you see what I mean? So I think you need to start, personally, I think the starting with biblical theology is a great way to do it. Um, but I think until you get to systematic theology, then you may not actually know how to apply it. Yeah. So it's, it's mm. the table of genres. The table of genres? Yeah. Well, I mean, the table of genres is um, just a... A table of genres. <laughs> um, uh, but then thinking about how we actually engage with those things, yes, yeah, is, um, is, is an aspect of biblical theology. Now, like I say, um, systematic theologians should and generally will do the work of biblical theologians, and biblical theologians should do the work of systematic theologians. So I don't think there's as much of a divide as some people uh, make, uh, make it out to be. All right, maybe this is getting a bit technical. Is this. Um, so we actually get into how you then approach the Bible. Okay, so the Bible is God's story. It is one unified story, but it is made up of different books that were written at different times. And um, if you feel like this session is getting heavy, don't worry, the next session is going to be lighter, and there are donuts preceding it as well. So, um, turn to the next page. Essentially, I think there are two main tasks. Just to, And again, what I'm doing today is I'm introducing themes and concepts that may seem abstract now, but in the coming months you'll be like, oh, that's what he was talking about, a biblical approach, a systematic approach. And I want to introduce two more concepts um, that are tied up in our interpretation of the Bible, exegesis and hermeneutics. I don't know if you've heard those words. Are there any people for whom those are very familiar words? Hermeneutics, yeah, yeah. Well, um, okay, great. Well, we'll get more to hermeneutics in the second session, so hopefully we'll, um, uh, hopefully I'll work out how to explain it by then. <laughs> um, but I think that interpreting the Bible needs both of those things, exegesis and hermeneutics. Okay, broadly, I would say, uh, exegesis is about um, asking what was God's word to them, to the original hearers. Hermeneutics is about what is God's word to us, I suppose. So how does it cross from the old context to our context? That's a broad oversimplification, but I'll unpack that as we go. But I want to start by talking about exegesis. When you come to a book of the Bible, um, or a particular passage of the Bible, I think the first thing that you should be trying to do is not thinking, how is this a word for me today? How can this shape the way that I live when I walk out my door? But the first thing we should be doing is saying, what did it mean to them? What did the original author mean? What did the original hearers think this meant? That's not to say that what does it mean to me doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But if you leap to what it means to me without first thinking what it meant to them, you will end up with some fairly wacky <laughs> um, or just not not accurate explanations of what uh, the text originally meant. So we need to start off with the task of exegesis, working out what the passage originally meant to them. So when we are approaching a text, and I had just spent a whole day teaching exegesis and hermeneutics in our church, so, um, so I'm going over this ridiculously quickly. Um, I'm very sorry. Uh, I think the, the recordings are available on our church website, which is super reviewed. So um, do you check that out if it would help. Uh, this is the little potted um, history here. Um, I'm going to hide behind a second. But uh, beginning with exegesis, I think we need to start by asking particular questions over whatever passage we come to. And the questions are to do with context and content. Context and content. 
Say you are in your Bible reading, you turn to a particular passage, or you have to preach on a passage, or lead a Bible study on a particular passage. The first questions you should be asking are to do with context. The first thing, the historical context. You want to ask questions like who, what, why, where, and when. Who? Who is the author? Who are the recipients? What is their relationship, perhaps? Um, what? What is actually being written? How is it structured? What is the tone of it? Why? What was the purpose of it being written? Where was it written from and to? Where was the author? Where were the recipients? When was it written? Now, some of these are difficult questions that you won't be able to figure out by yourself, and so you may well need commentaries or you may need Bible study guides to help you answer some of these questions. Using those things is not a sign of failure. I use those all the time. Some people like, seem to like the idea that I should be able to get everything out of this book with no help at all. I, I think that's unrealistic. I think it's fine to use commentaries and they can be incredibly helpful for answering some of these questions that you may not be able to derive from the text yourself. And actually on the recommended resources page at the end, again, two main books but also a list of um, commentaries which may be helpful. Um, so if you've ever struggled to know how do I find a book that's going to help me on this particular topic, that may well um, help you. So you start by asking questions about the historical context, but then the literary context. What is the genre? What is the type of book we're dealing with? I mean, let's go to that for a second. If you turn to the next page, what I've done is I've given you here um, the different genres. Narrative law, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic, gospel, and epistle, and a couple of guidelines to bear in mind as you're approaching something. So if you, in your Bible study, are happen to be reading through Daniel right now, um, you need to understand something about the way that apocalyptic literature, of which Daniel is a great example, works in order to get your head around it. Otherwise, if you try and interpret it the same way you might judge it, or something like that, you may struggle. <laughs> so, this is just a very, very briefly summarised thing, and as we go through the course, you will come across these different genres, and you'll do this in way more depth. But let me just skim through some of it quickly. Uh, narrative. Narrative, um, they are purposeful stories. That is, they are retellings of historic events that are told in a particular way for a particular purpose. And so actually the author has a goal in mind when he has written these narratives down. He wants you to think in a particular way. So they may not always be strictly chronological. They are presented to make the meaning, the purpose, plain. Uh, so when you are reading narrative, there are some questions to ask yourself about the plot, the setting, the characters, the narrator, the dramatic tools. Of course, we can say more about that. Law. When you come to the books of the law, so the second half of Exodus or uh, uh, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, for example, uh, you may need to get your head around well, what is actually going on in this book. What was the purpose of this book and how does that help me interpret it? And I think it's worth di sort of differentiating between the law, which is the whole system, and the laws of which there are more than 600. And actually, there are different types of laws. So even within this one book, you may not be able to treat every law in exactly the same way because you may have different types of laws. Let me just tell you these very quickly. You have what is known as apodictic laws, uh, which are direct commands, do not do X. And they are laws that are for everyone in all situations. Uh, they may not be exhaustive. For example, uh, don't reap to the edges of your field. Um, it's very clear for someone who owns a field, uh, but say you own a vineyard, you might think, well, that doesn't apply to me. No, it does. The apodictic laws apply to you because they apply to everyone, but you may need to interpret them slightly differently. Then you have a different type of law called casuistic law, case law, which singles out particular niche cases that may occur, but which don't affect everyone. 
for example, there are all sorts of laws about if you own X number of slaves and they do this, then you may need to respond in this particular way. But if you didn't own slaves, it just doesn't apply to you. And being able to determine between the different types of laws is really helpful. So that's, I think, why we get bogged down in books like Exodus and uh, Leviticus and Numbers, partly because we think, wow, I don't know how any of these apply to me, but even I don't know how they apply to one another, because some of the laws are particularly confusing. Um, I won't say too much about the law, except that we often think of it as a negative thing, and we shouldn't. When we come to the law, we should see it as being something that reveals God's character, and it's an act of grace. So in John chapter 1, for example, it talks about um, uh, Jesus came to bring grace upon grace. And people often interpret that as lots of grace. (laughs) Actually, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think he's saying Jesus is coming to give you grace on top of the grace you already had through the law. And in the context of John 1, it's talking about Moses and uh, and the law there. I think he's saying actually the law is a depiction and unveiling of God's grace. But Jesus comes and gives us grace upon the grace that we already have. So when we read the law, my temptation is just to think, oh man, this is going to be really hard. I can't wait to get on to the good grace stuff. <laughs> Actually, trying to come to it with a heart attitude and say, this is God's good gift to us. God didn't give us an evil gift. He's a father who doesn't go, hey, when you're naked, here's a scorpion. This is the law. Like, he, he is a good father who gives us good gifts. So try and come to the law with a positive attitude. <laughs> um, Yeah, I won't go through all of this. Are there particular genres that people have questions over? Otherwise, I might just leave you to look at that yourself and then apply it as you go through the books. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean less than 1%? Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so prophecy is really interesting. So when we get to the prophets, um, we tend to think that it's all going to be future-looking. Actually, um, the prophets... Their primary purpose was to call people back to the way of living that they were already given in the gracious gift of the Lord. And so prophecy, at least in terms of the genre of scripture, um, is not really about prophesying too much of the future. It's about getting people back to God's purposes, to playing the role that they were meant to in the story. So if you were to look at all the prophet, uh, prophecies within the genre of prophets, less than 2% of them are messianic. Uh, less than 2% of them are actually pointed towards Jesus. Less than 5% describe the new covenant age. Less than 1% is about events that are yet to come from our perspective. Um, usually they did prophesy about the future, but it was a very close future. So very little, I mean, that's what, what 92% or something, is about the, the, the very close future. Things that the people who heard it would get to experience themselves. Uh, which is interesting, isn't it? When, if you think that you are reading Isaiah or you're reading Jeremiah and it's primarily going to be talking about things that haven't yet happened and are going to happen sort of towards the end of the world, that will skew the way you read it. Whereas actually these were texts that were written to people who were going through particular challenges, trying to help them to understand uh, what was going on and how they can make sense of God in their world. Now there is often a future dynamic and there is often a dual dynamic as well. People have experienced something there which then gets replicated again when Jesus comes but, do you see what I mean? That really does change the way you approach the prophets, doesn't it? Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yes. Well, yes. Poetry. Yep. Has the modern understanding of that word, I think of poetry as imaginative, mm. fictional, mm. trying to get over mm. an emotional idea. Mm. 
And so to say, oh, that, that book's poetry mm. in scripture, yeah. I can't then say, but it's not yeah. uh, historically accurate. Are they real mm. books in the poet sections? Yeah. Do I have to throw away my Western idea of poetry? Well, I think it was, it's maybe not even just the Western idea of poetry, but the imagination, actually. Um, I've been thinking about this quite a lot because I'm doing a talk on the imagination next week, but um, we often think that imagination equals imaginary, um, whereas that's not quite the case. So if you talk about um, uh, it's all imaginary, you clearly mean that in a negative way, this guy's making out he's not grounded in reality. But if you talk about what we need here as an imaginative leader, what you're saying is not a guy who's not grounded in reality, but a guy who sees things in a different way, things that actually are, but sees them in a different way. So the way we think about the imagination might be slightly different. Um, as a first point, but then poetry, um, I think, is often purposeful and um, and occasional as well. By which I don't mean infrequent; I mean uh, bound to a particular occasion. So when you read the Psalms, very often it's worth looking at why who wrote this psalm and why did they write the psalm. And it may well be that David wrote this psalm because he was being pursued by this particular person who was trying to kill him. And therefore, when he is putting stuff which seems very imaginative and very poetic, and you're like. I don't think I'm meant to interpret that literally. Well, yes, you probably aren't meant to interpret it literally, but there is a literal meaning beneath it that if you can kind of get to that, it will help you interpret it in a different way. So I think it's not just art for art's sake. It's not just beautiful ideas. Let me describe a tree to you. Um, it's, it's often beautiful, uh, but also truthful at the same time. It's trying to uh, get to your mind through your heart rather than the other way around. So it is trying to lead you to a particular goal. <laughs> think a new way about life or about God or your own situation, but the way it gets there is through this. Do you what I mean? Does that kind of answer the question? But we have to assume there is a realistic situation underneath it. It's not just David going, imagine if I was pursued by an army. Ah, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Yes, so in certain um, certain things like that, yes, I think so. Um, Although, it may well be that, say, uh, there, there are probably a whole bunch of them, but we don't know what the particular occasion is. And when David says things that are more plural or more general, like um, the nations rage in vain, he might not have one particular nation in mind. He might just think the world in which we live right now is divided into those who have God who don't. And he might not have a particular literal nation in mind. See what I mean? Um, yeah. Okay, there's tons that we could say on these particular genres, but that's actually why you're going to spend two years on it. So <laughs> um, let's go back to the previous page very quickly. And then I want to ground this. Um, so you ask questions about the historical context and what is the genre. And then you want to ask really what's, what's the immediate literary context to what I am reading. So if I am reading, um, for example... Uh, uh, Daniel 6. Um, I often think that I can understand Daniel 6 by reading Daniel 6 and nothing else. Actually, that's not the case. What we need to do is start there and then broaden out. So, and broaden out both directions. Um, primarily, perhaps, back, but also forward as well. So, what comes before Daniel 6? Hey, bright bunch there. Um, Daniel 5. And then, of course, 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. So, in order to understand Daniel 6, I think we're meant to understand the rest of 
Daniel that has gone so far, but also it may help us to think forward to 7, 8, 9, etc. Because when you get to Daniel 9, 11, 12 particularly, you get all these different bits that you see, oh, this is what it was all building to. I understand Daniel's purpose now. So actually what you want to do when you're reading any passage is broaden out to think, what do the surrounding chapters tell me? Then what does that tell me about Daniel as a whole? What does that tell me about his plan or his purpose in writing the entire book? And then, of course, you might want to say, well, Daniel may not be a great example because he only wrote the one book. But if you take someone who wrote multiple books, you might want to say, well, how does that one book fit within his broader catalogue? So if you read a particular author um, and you particularly love this one author, you know that even if they go and try and write in a different genre, they tend to take the same style with them, don't they? And, And so understanding something about the author's genre, what matters to him, Uh, really makes a big difference. So, for example, Luke seems to really be passionate about the spirit and about the poor and the marginalised. And so if you're reading Acts um, and you think, well, how does Acts fit within Luke's broader back catalogue, both written by Luke, then you might think, oh, many of the themes about the poor and the marginalised, etc., come through in Acts. And so you read Acts in a different way. And you start to really notice uh, how the gospel crosses into uh, various different ethnic boundaries or reaches out to people who would otherwise have been um, segregated or downtrodden in society. And so seeing the author's whole passion, the whole uh, back catalogue, helps you. So you start here, then you broaden out, and then you broaden out to other books. And you may also want to broaden out historically as well, and say what's going on at the same time as this. So for example, if I read the story of Daniel, I might then want to go and read the stories of other people who are writing to the same situation. So for example, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was writing about similar things that cross over with Daniel. And if I look at some of the themes um, that Jeremiah is talking to, I realise, oh, he's talking to the exiles, the people who were living in Daniel's story. And so if I kind of then read those things against each other, I get a richer idea of what their experience might have been. I then may want to broaden out further and think, well, what happened after Jeremiah? What happened after the story of Daniel? Did they ever get back to the land? And then I need to go and read other books like uh, Nehemiah and think, oh, they did get back to the land. How does that help me? So you start here and you broaden out. Now, that may sound like in any Bible study time, I need to start in one passage and then by the end of the time I need to read the whole Bible. So I'm not kind of saying that. Um, But I am saying that if you really want to get to grips with a particular text, you need to ask, what is the broader context within the book, within the author's work, within the genre, within the rest of the Bible? Uh, There's tons we can say about that, I'm sure. Um, But context, that's where we start. Secondly, we need to ask questions about content. Uh, And again, in this similar sort of way, if I were to take... Um, let's narrow it down and say I was looking at Daniel 6 verse 14 there are certain things I can glean from Daniel 6 14. If I really pay, I don't know what Daniel 6, 14 is off the top of my head. It could be the worst passage in the world. I know, I just picked a random number. Um, But uh, there could be real things that I can figure out from that particular verse if I pay close attention to repeated words or um, lists or cause and effect or figures of speech that are going on then. But also, I need to then broaden it out and say, well, how does 14 relate to verse 15? In fact, the whole of chapter 6. And then how does it relate to the five etc. So you want to start by looking at sentences and then broaden that out to look at paragraphs and then look at whole discourses. So uh, let's say Daniel falls into two parts, which it sort of broadly does, one to six and seven to the end. And you might want to, if someone's found Daniel 6.14, <laughs> uh, probably need to look it up. I don't, I, I don't want to know what it is because it could be an awful <laughs> uh, uh, But... 
So if, if you understand that Daniel, and you will understand through a commentary, that Daniel falls into two sections, um, then you may want to say, well, how does Daniel 6 then fit within the whole section? You may not want to even bother going into chapter 7 at the moment. You might want to start there, look at the verses around, broaden it out, and say, well, how does Daniel 1 to 6 have this particular goal, and have, what function does this verse play within that whole discourse? Do you see what I mean? Now, this feels very technical and very boring, and I'm not expecting you to do your quiet times like this, and I don't do my quiet times like this. But if I'm coming to preach on a passage, or if I'm really struggling with a particular verse, and I think I need to figure this one out in more than just I read it and I pray about it away, I really sort of want to study it, then this is the process that you need to go through. But of course, most of us don't sit down and go, let's start with the historical context, and then the literary context, and then the sentence, and the paragraph, and the discourse. This is something that we do intuitively. So if this sounds very dry and very boring right now, it is. <laughs> um, but the more you actually learn to do this, the more intuitive this becomes. And you start to more naturally uh, read the Bible as it was meant to be read. And the whole goal, I think, of this process of exegesis is to ask yourself, what did God's word mean to them, both to the author and to the person it was written to? So that's why you need to start by saying, who was it written to? Who was it written by? And the goal should be, I think, to summarise that verse or that passage in one sentence. And ideally to do it in the past tense. Um, so, for example, you may read um, a section and uh, it's in Paul's writings and you, you think, well, how does this um, fit with the particular goal he had for the Corinthian church? And you sort of broaden it out and you think about it. And then at the end, you could just have this ton of information if you've just studied like left, right and centre. That's not going to stick in your head, and that's not going to help you. So the goal should be, and this is something I try and do when I'm reading the Bible now, is to try and summarise each passage in a single sentence. So you may want to say, you know, Paul encouraged the church in Ephesus to X, and it's 12 words, no more. That's exegesis. It's technical because there's loads to do, but the goal is to be able to summarise the passage in one short sentence. Does that make sense? Like I say, we are rushing over a lot of the stuff. <laughs> um, all right, let's, should we do it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay, two people want to do it. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> skip ahead to page. Oh. Let me say one more thing about narrative, and then we'll do it, um, because this is actually quite important. If you skip ahead to, that's the page, um, I should have put page numbers on it, shouldn't I? Uh, the one that has three levels of narrative. Um, just one more thing to say that helps shape the way we do exegesis, uh, and I'll say this quickly, and then we'll actually get on to doing a little bit. Um, when we start off by looking at a particular passage and trying to figure out what it means, and then and then read it in its context. In order to understand and appreciate scripture properly, we need to ask, um, how does this fit within the narrative, the story of God? And when we ask that question, I think it becomes clear that actually there's more than one narrative going on, which is sort of shown by the way we summarise the Old Testament and the New Testament all together in slightly different ways. Actually, there are kind of three levels of narrative. And it's a bit technical, so I won't go through this in too much depth, but I want to get to a point about Jesus, so uh, hold on for that. Um, there are essentially three levels of narrative going on. There's the meta-narrative, what we talked about earlier, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the whole universal plan of God. But underneath that, there's another way of reading the narrative of Scripture, which I think you alluded to, by talking about Old and New Covenant, 
And essentially, the Bible falls into two sections, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this has to do with election, God choosing and redeeming the people for his name. But also, of course, then, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant break down into micro-narratives, smaller stories that make up the bigger narratives. So, for example, in my quiet time, I am not reading the entire Old Covenant. (laughs) I am probably reading the part of the Abraham story in which Abraham and Lot do... They're going fishing trip, whatever it is, they don't go on fishing trip. But that, that may be the bit that I am reading. But if I am to genuinely understand that, what I need to do is read it up through the levels. So I start with this little compound narrative about uh, Abraham and Lot doing X, Y, or Z. Uh, and then I need to ask myself, well, where does this fit within the narrative above, the election narrative? Oh, it's old covenant rather than new covenant. That's going to shape the way I think about the story. How does that then fit within the meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Ah, well, it's not in the creation phase, so I don't expect everything to be perfect. It's not in the redemption phase, because Jesus hasn't come yet. So it comes somehow in the fall phase. So what was the world like at that point? How does this story develop? And where do I slot it in? So when you read a little passage, try and read it up through the levels to then think, how does this fit within the grand story of Scripture? Now, here's a question for you. When Jesus said in John 5, 39, that all of the scriptures testify to him and point to him, what level of narrative do you think he was talking about? One, two, or three? Uh, Show hands for one. The whole of the story is pointing to Jesus. Show hands for two. I love the way that whenever we ask people to show hands, they kind of like... <laughs> looking, looking for uh, who thinks level three? <laughs> Great. Now, what's really interesting about that is a lot of people didn't put their hands up at all, but um, uh, loads of people would usually go for three. So this is unusual to be in a room like this where only one person did it, and he only did it because he felt bullied into it. But, <laughs> um, but loads of us, actually, in the way that we think, and preachers particularly, tend to treat it as if it's level three. I think it is actually level one. I think when Jesus is saying that the scriptures testify to him, I think he's primarily talking about the whole story finding the fulfillment in him. Now, why is that important? I think it's important because it helps us to determine between two ways of reading scripture, that I, one of which I think is more helpful than others. Sometimes you hear preachers talk about Christocentric preaching. Has anyone heard that sort of phrase? It's, it's all centered around Christ. Christ is the goal of every... every well, if you're talking about Christocentric preaching, Christ is the goal of every sermon. I agree with that. But if you think that Christ is the goal um, or the centre of every little passage that you read in Scripture, I think you're operating at level three and you come up with some slightly peculiar understandings of a passage. So I have heard plenty of preachers, and I've probably done it myself, where it's like, ah, here, these people were walking through a a river, and they crossed over a bridge, and there were some rocks. Jesus is hiding under the rock. The rock represents Jesus. And I say, they got to find Jesus like a where's Wally in every single (laughs) passage of Scripture. I don't think that is what Jesus meant. Hey, I'm hiding there in my little stripy suit. Come and find me. I, I don't think... That's what Jesus said. I don't want to be too flippant because I do think there are some stories where you're like, oh wow, that really blows me away. 
Jesus there in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, they do talk about Christ being the rock. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about this moment where Christ was the rock and Christ in Jude talks about Christ leading the people out of Egypt. So I definitely think that Jesus was there. But I think when Jesus talks at all scripture pointing to him, I think he's talking primarily at the meta-narrative level. And so what I find more helpful, rather than thinking about all stories centering around Christ, is what is known as Christotelic uh, reading or Christotelic uh, preaching. And the Greek word telos means purpose or end or goal. So to think Christotelically means to read a story thinking that Jesus is the goal, the end purpose of God's redemptive story. And so when I'm reading the story of Abraham and Lot doing X, Y, or Z, I'm, wanting to, I'm not primarily thinking, and where is Jesus hiding in this story? But I'm thinking if I read this up into the election narrative and into the great story of what Jesus is the goal, then how do I read that in the life of him? Do you see what I mean? Yes, good, good. <laughs> and if you say nothing or no, I'm going to assume you've no idea what I'm talking about, and then I'm probably going to just repeat it. So, <laughs> uh, so it's in your, uh, your favour to say yes. Yes, go for it. Church in Israel is um, probably a bigger topic than I want to get into now. Partly because it's um, no, but I, I can hone it in a little bit more. Um, let's leave beside Israel for the moment, because then the question that people then wonder about is, what do we think about Israel today? Which is massive and minefield. So, uh, but let's let's go to that question of what the purpose of the covenants were. I think the purpose of the covenants were to to help the people function within the period of the story that they find themselves and. If you think of that second level of election, God's plan was always to choose a people for himself. And the way he did that at particular points of history was by enacting a covenant with Noah, Moses, etc., etc. Um, but then you've got to ask, well, do those covenants carry on now? Um, or were they particularly for particular focuses? Yes. Um, or what was their purpose? And once their purpose has been fulfilled do they then become obsolete? So, so Jesus, when talking about himself and about scripture, he says uh, none of this Old Testament is going to get wiped away. Like Christians often seem to treat the Old Testament as if, yeah, we don't need that tool. Jesus is like, no, no, not one jot or tittle, not one tiny little dot over an eye gets wiped away. But in him, it all gets fulfilled. And once something is fulfilled, you've then got to ask, well, does it need to be fulfilled again and again and again and again? So for example, if you were to take Lord of the Rings, um, the story uh, is there's this task that is given to this group of people to take this ring and to throw it into uh, this fire. <laughs> I can't remember the names of any of the places, which is fine because 
they don't exist. So, um, but clearly the plan is to take it uh, to this particular place and to throw the ring in, and then the story, the goal is fulfilled. And they made a promise to one another that they would help each other to do that. Now, once they get to the point and they throw the ring in and it gets destroyed, you would say that that promise, that commitment they have made to one another has actually been fulfilled. So you then don't think, well, that's now an ongoing promise or that that needs to be repeated. It has found its goal. It's found its purpose and it will be fulfilled. And I think when Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and the covenants, what he is saying is that all those things find their completion in him. And Hebrews then talks about the old covenant now being obsolete because we have a new one. The old one has completely found all of its purpose. And so Jesus is inaugurated a new one. Now, it's a mistake to think that the new one must look entirely unlike the old one. I think there's some continuity between the two. Um, but my primary way of thinking about the covenants is they all came to their completion, like the ring going into uh, it's come to its completion in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and ascension, pouring out of the Spirit. And now I don't operate under those new covenant rules unless the same rules are expressed in the new covenant. Does that sort of make sense? If I made that more complex than, <laughs> than your initial question. I may well have done. Let's talk about it further in a break, if, um, if, if I can help. Um, let me do, let's do one very quick exercise, and then we'll end this session. Because I need coffee, and I suspect you do as well. <laughs> so turn to the last page of this section. Um, Okay, if we had time, what I would do now is I would break you into your groups and I would get you all to look at the story of the Good Samaritan and do this exegesis thing. So uh, go through the historical context, literary context, the, the sentences, the par- paragraphs, the, the whole thing, how it fits within the rest of Luke chapter 10. We don't have time to do that in groups. So let's kind of go through it now and I'll expect you to sort of shout out and we'll do it live, as it were. Um, but just for a laugh, and this is a bit of a cheap shot, to be honest, at Augustine, but he's dead, so <laughs> what's he going to do about it? Um, this, let me read you Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan. And what I want you to think, um, as I'm reading this, is is this good exegesis? Is this a good explanation of what God's word meant to them from this particular story? Uh, if yes, why? If no, um, then why not? This is Augustine's interpretation. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace, from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality because it was born, it waxes, it wanes, and it dies. The thieves represent the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signified by the name. So in Augustine's interpretation, the Good Samaritan is Christ. Um, The binding of the wounds represents the restraint of sin. Oil represents the comfort of good hope. Wine represents the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast is the flesh in which he is uh, is deigned to come to us. 
The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn represents the church, where travellers returning to their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage. The morrow, the next morning, is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two denarii are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and the life to come. The innkeeper represents the apostle Paul. The payment is either his counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new, though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel. This is Augustine's interpretation of the good Samaritan. Is that good exegesis? Hands up if you think yes. You don't want to put your hand up just for the sake of it. Okay, we all agree this is not good exegesis. Why? Why not? Well, first off, yeah. Namely, Paul. Paul. Yeah. Okay. Great. I mean, that's a great answer. Isn't it? So, the point of exegesis is to say, what did this mean originally when Jesus told it, when Luke recorded it, when people received it? And yeah, talking about the church or Paul can't have been what Jesus meant. Surely that's not what he was trying to get across when he said the story. Yeah. Any other reasons why you think this is a problematic um, exegesis? It's nowhere near a sentence. It's nowhere near a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true, yes. But nothing in Augustine is anywhere near a sentence. He is long, he is long. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you ever read the, the, the uh, story of the Good Samaritan and thought, I think this is about celibacy. <laughs> no, no. Augustine, what was going on in your mind? <laughs> Every six seconds. So, um, yeah. Why those meanings? Why those metaphors? Why not others? Yeah. I don't think that can be good exegesis. And the main reason I think it can be good exegesis is Luke tell, 10 tells us why Jesus told the parable, and he didn't tell it because he wants to be celibate. Like, there's a particular reason that Jesus told the story. So, Bible's open, and in the dying minutes of this session, we have probably three minutes, um, it's probably quicker just to do this by yourself. Look through the story and see if you can find a, an explanation for why Jesus told the story so that you can summarise the Good Samaritan in a single sentence. I mean, you may already know the story enough that you feel you can do that now. Um, how would you summarise the story and the purpose of telling the story in a single sentence? Okay, I know that was super quick, but um, I'm conscious that we need to take a break. So if, if we were to go through this step by step, as I have suggested, we'd start off by asking questions about the historical context. Um, so let's uh, just throw out very quickly, um, who is writing this? Luke, yes. But is there any other person involved in telling you this story who we may need to take into account? Jesus, yes, this is one of those ones where Jesus is the right answer, yes. Uh, Jesus is telling the story, but Luke has recorded a particular answer uh, uh, for a particular reason. Um, when was he telling the story? I don't need a particular day of the week. Or, um, during Jesus' ministry. Did that come before or after the cross? Before the cross, yep. Um, Old or New Testament? Yeah, okay, so reading it up through the um, through the different levels of narrative, you think, okay, it comes there, it fits in, yeah, and you sort of slot it all up. Um, and who is he speaking to? 
a... Oh, I, so someone said Jews, plural, but was there a particular person? There was a teacher, yeah, but it was a lawyer, actually. Um, uh, so someone with a, who had a particular focus on the law um, itself. Okay, great. And then we'd ask questions about the literary context, and it's the gospel, so we need to think a little bit about that. Uh, what was the reason for Jesus telling the story? What was the immediate context? Someone was asking him a question. Okay, what was the question? No, no, no. The question is, should I be celibate? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Like, the question is, who is my neighbour? And what was the reason for the lawyer asking? Yeah, so that, that, that preceded it. So yes, if you start with the, the sentence and you widen out. But then there was a particular tone, a particular thing going on in the lawyer's mind as he asked the question. Yeah, so how can I get eternal life? Uh, that's how it sort of starts. And then Jesus uh, talks about um, the purpose of, I guess, of the greatest law, doesn't he? And then it says the lawyer seeking to justify himself. That's interesting, isn't it? There's a particular tone going on. This guy is like, what happens where I'm living right now? So, so that tells us that when Jesus is telling the story... He's like, I'm going to take this guy down if I got to. So there's, yeah. there's a reason for him telling the story in this particular way. He's got a purpose in mind, hasn't he? He wants to get into a particular goal. Um, great. And then we might want to broaden it out and say, well, why did Luke tell this particular story? And, and then we might think, well, Luke seemed to have a particular care for the outcasts or the downtrodden, and Samaritans certainly were like that. And, and so then we may want to think, well, what else is going around the passage? So we've looked at that particular discourse and the questions at the start, but then you may want to go back to Luke chapter 9. And what you see in Luke chapter 9 is really interesting. A Samaritan village rejects Jesus. And then it talks about the cost of following Jesus. And then Jesus sends out the 72, and they go to a whole bunch of cities, some of which reject them and some of which accept them. And then you get this parable of the Good Samaritan. So you would start to think, well, is there a reason why Luke has put these together? He seems to have an agenda at this point. He's talking about people rejecting or accepting Christ, and there being a cost to what it means to genuinely follow Christ. And then you get this situation with the Samaritan village. So you already know these guys are enemies. So when you read the story, it gives you all this rich understanding and it helps you to, um, to get to the heart of what's going on. Uh, and then, of course, you get to the content itself, and you may want to ask a whole load of questions, which we won't ask now, like how much was two denarii? What, was that a big cost? Was it a low cost? And given that we've just talked about the cost of following Jesus, and you see this guy gives two denarii out of his own pocket to a guy he should be ignoring, and then uses oil and wine, and you might want to say, well, were they common commodities or were they expensive things? There seems to be an issue of cost going on here. Jesus is telling the story in a particular way to, to help you realise the severity of the situation, and then he binding the open wound. Why mention that bit? Why not just call a doctor? Well, they didn't have doctors, but well, they did, but not in the same sort of way. Why the mention of the wounds? And then you might want to think, well, where does this fit within the story? They were under the law. Did the law say anything about open wounds? And it was unclean. So Jesus is drawing together all these different themes of ethnic conflict, of law, of value and cost in order to tell this story to a guy who thinks, oh, I'm not happy with the way I'm living. You are not a genuine follower of me because you're not living up to the cost. And if you were, this is what it would look like. You see? You see how, at this point, I've not applied this to you or to me, and we've not done the hermeneutics bit. But I think that going through that kind of process is a really good way of understanding what the text originally meant. So if you were to try and summarise the story and the point of the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan in a single sentence, uh, you might say something like, Jesus told this story in order to help his hearer know who his neighbour was, because loving God and your neighbour is the summation of the law which leads to eternal life. 
and he showed that our neighbour may be unexpected people and we must show them mercy even if that costs a lot to themselves. So we've not leapt to what this means for us, but I think that's a fairly good summary of the Good Samaritan.